0: Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pod. If you are of the generous sort, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation. And if that isn't your thing, you can also purchase fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. I am Zach Crum, and joining me for today's episode is my master's advisor, Dr. Noah Bressman. Dr. Bressman is an assistant professor of physiology at Salisbury University. His work is highly interdisciplinary, but he has a primary focus on how amphibious fishes orient and move over land. Currently, we are working on a project together investigating blue catfish and northern snakehead feeding ecology on Maryland's eastern shore. Long-time fans of the podcast may remember hearing about Noah's research, but I invited Noah on today to discuss a review paper he recently published in the journal Integrative and Comparative Biology. The paper touches on the terrestrial capabilities of invasive fish and their implications for management. Welcome to the podcast, Noah. Thanks for having me, Zach. Absolutely. Excited to talk about how fish move over land, something that really probably captivates a lot of people and probably raises a lot of questions in people's minds, I imagine, from, from your work so <laughs> far. Oh, yeah. I get people like,
1: oh, no, these fish have come on land to get me. Oh, no, and all sorts of stories like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. The, the horror stories, the really awful horror stories from back in the day on snakeheads moving over land and eating people's dogs definitely <laughs> resonated with, with many, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, to clarify, they don't eat dogs. They, they can't <laughs> get children on the shoreline. They can move
0: over land, but not well enough to have to fear them. <laughs> exactly. So, I guess my first question. One that probably a lot of people have is why the heck would a fish want to come onto land in the first place? So there's
1: a variety of different reasons for a fish to come onto land. Uh, There's different motivations. The act of coming onto land is called immersion. And so there's different factors that promote immersion. And that could be perhaps poor water quality. The quality you are in, uh, the water that you're in may be, let's say, too high in hydrogen sulfide. uh, And that may cause the fish called the mangrove rivulus to leave the water search of better quality water. Or in the case of snakeheads, it may be the water is too salty or too acidic, or it's got too high carbon dioxide, and then they may leave the water in search of better quality water. And so it's always a trade-off, though, in these conditions, because going on land makes them more vulnerable. So the condition that causes them to go on land often has to be weighted with the risk of perhaps predation. If there are terrestrial predators, some may just hop from a little crab hole out a few inches away to a different crab hole, and you're probably pretty safe there. Uh, but again, there's other other factors for immersion include prey. Some fish will go onto land like the uh, walking catfish and relatives of walking catfish, like the eel catfish may prey on terrestrial beetles and then lunge onto them on land and bring them back into water or in like a puddle during the rain. Some may the water may be too hot. In case of the mangrove rivulous. they'll come onto land to cool off through evaporative cooling, just like with our sweat, and that helps us cool off. And so, just a variety of different reasons, and each fish uh, may come onto land for different reasons. Some reasons that cause one fish to come on land may not cause a different fish to come onto land. And so, we have to look at these conditions on a species by species basis.
0: Right. So, yeah, I, I definitely remember reading about all these, some of these factors in your paper. So, I assume you touch on. Kind of those differences by species a little bit in the paper. So, to go through more in depth onto some of these things. So, variety of reasons driving these some fish to leave the water. So, how do they actually move around while on land? And, and I know the science is kind of young, probably on a lot of this. But what are you seeing so far in terms of like how do these fish actually move? In the area of
1: amphibious fishes, how they move is actually the area that we probably know the best. We still it's still a flourishing field, but we we there's been some good biomechanical studies on how they move. And there seems to be a few main categories of strategies. There is axial locomotion using just the axial body. So like American eels will come onto land and, and essentially slither like a snake on land or you'll have the rope fish that'll do something similar. More eels do this too. Just any elongate fish, very elongate fish can move over land just using the axial body in a similar way, not the same way, but a similar way to a snake moves over land. Then you have appendage-based locomotion, where you just use your appendages, and this includes really just mudskippers, because they have such highly modified pectoral fins that stick out, and they got extra robust fin rays that they can then move in an unusual orientation relative to most fins, uh, pectoral fins. And so this allows them to move overland in what's known as a crutching behavior, essentially crutching along on their pectoral fins. Then you're something in between. You have what is known as actual appendage-based locomotor behaviors, where fish will use a combination of their fins, particularly their pectoral fins, but also sometimes their pelvic fins, and their actual body. And this includes things like the northern snakehead, walking catfish, pole sculpin. All these they essentially do like an army crawl using their fins and their tail. Again. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a spectrum. So, some of these rely more on their body, a little bit more. Some of these rely more on their fins, depending on their adaptations, but it's a general category. But then there's some weird ones, too. You got things like uh, fish that will climb waterfalls with their oral suction cups, like uh, some types of sucker mouth catfishes and lampreys. And there's also uh, these waterfall climbing gobies that will use either their pelvic suction cup and or their, if some of the, some species also have a mouth suction cup to do what's known as power burst, where they kind of swim and burst up and cling onto a waterfall and swim up again, or they'll inchworm. And then there's some fish that will use the, their opercula, the climbing perch to move over land and even climb short slopes, like up to like 30 degrees, which isn't even that short. Then you also have these fish that will jump around on land, like um, mummy chugs, A lot of killifish, mangrove rivulus. These fish will just hop around and they'll reorient. And if you are familiar with an aquatic sea start, where a fish goes onto its uh, fish, basically, it does an aquatic sea start on land where it'll go onto its side, curl its body, curl its head over its tail in a C shape, and then push off against the ground with their tail to launch into a ballistic flight path and allow them to hop over and over and over. Those are the main categories of how fish move around on land. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So some of the species that you've mentioned so far don't have non-native populations established, but some do, right? So what is it about these invasive species and particularly their terrestrial capabilities that makes them sort of problematic for fisheries managers?
1: So all amphibious fishes have a native range. They're native to somewhere. Like mummy chugs are native to the Atlantic coast of North America. You have walking catfish are native to Southeast Asia. Snakeheads also native to Southeast and Eastern Asia. And so all these fish have a native range. But a a piece that I touched on in this new paper is that I did a little analysis looking at the percentage of overall amphibious fishes. There's less than 1% of all fish are amphibious, but that may be a little bit of an underestimate just because of undersampling. But about 1% of all fish are amphibious, uh, but about 10% or even more of invasive fish species are amphibious. And that's because these fish uh, have adapted to breathe air and live in water conditions that are really harsh for other fish that are really low oxygen. Um, And so they have these adaptations for extreme conditions that allow them to survive pretty much anywhere. Uh, So it's like, for example, snakeheads can survive under the ice and all the way up to over 100 degree water temperature. And they can breathe air. They can tolerate pHs down to like 4.5. And so if you have a fish like this that gets introduced to a body of water, no matter where this body of water is, it's likely to be able to survive. Whereas let's say you get a nice delicate Arctic grayling from the Arctic Circle, and then you transplant them to the Amazon rainforest, it's going to be too hot for it and maybe too turbid for it, and it's not going to do well because it's adapted to a pretty narrow set of conditions. Whereas these amphibious fishes are able to survive in a variety of conditions. And if Let's say, uh, particularly where they're from, they've adapted to floodplains where you'll have areas that get flooded and thin bits of water so surrounding, uh, let's say a field. And then the water goes down and they strand them in puddles where toxins can accumulate quickly or oxygen quickly run out. And so they've developed these adaptations based on their, uh, their native environment, which may have facilitated the development of these amphibious behaviors. And then now they can survive in these other environments where let's say, oh, this pond that I was introduced isn't the best quality pond. I can perhaps move overland to the next pond. Or like the case of uh, walking catfish in Florida, which are non-native to Florida. they, let's say you have a hurricane come, it'll cause a flood through basically the whole state because it's all flat and all waterways. And the fish can then take advantage of that and feed. And let's say you have an inch of water on, on all the worms that come out in rain. And then they'll just go down into the storm drain system, survive underground because uh, in the storm drain system, and then pop up out of the storm drains during the next flood and take advantage of these extreme conditions because they thrive in these conditions. They've adapted for these conditions. And so if these fish have adapted for the worst, then no matter where you introduce them, even if it's the worst, they can survive, but it's not the worst, they can also survive. Whereas other fish that aren't adapted that well are less likely to survive in those conditions.
0: Right. Yeah. So really just the hardiness of some of these amphibious invaders is kind of what makes them so potentially able to spread so easily. Exactly. And
1: that's part of how they got introduced in the first place. Things like northern snakeheads, uh, they can breathe air and you can keep them in a bucket without any water for a day or even just a bucket on itself without any filtration. And they can survive several days like that. And so they originally brought in from Asia for the live fish markets just because they taste good. You can keep them fresh really long, really easily. And so you can have them live at the market. People bring them home live easily without having to have like all sorts of fish tanks and pumps and whatnot. And so they got introduced through that method. Or there are also some fish are like, like plecos and walking catfish and other species of snakeheads are, again, really hardy and indestructible so people like oh let's bring them in the aquarium trade having our fish tanks they're hard to kill so they get in then they're hard to kill and they get out fish fish uh, gets too big their pleco gets too big they release them to a florida canal and now you have a, a foot and a half long plecos all over florida that can breathe air and move over land to some extent
0: it's crazy, yeah, and one of the things I'd think about too, just being up here in Maryland is you know the in the tidal systems here, how the the forests flood so easily on the high tide it's like what if you know we know the snakehead are likely going up into those flooded forests, and if that water recedes and they want to stay up there, I mean they're more than capable of doing so and then possibly moving around, so I always found that really interesting that kind of tidal component into into snakehead behavior exactly it's it's not
1: like they're these fish are always move around on land there's a spectrum yeah. of terrestriality some will only really rarely come on land some will more often but a lot of these behaviors it may let's say it may happen at night or it may just happen once during a flood where people aren't out looking for them but all you need is a one event till it's like oh i don't like this pond i'm going to go to the creek 20 feet away and then i'm there and then now i never need to move again because the conditions are good uh, right. but in the case of these flooded forests and just These like tidal areas, the snakeheads and mummy chugs still spread around, but mummy chugs are native to this region, and you can see them in like an inch of water at all these salt marshes at like Assateague National Seashore or the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. You can see them from the boardwalk right under. Uh, But the snakeheads are also seem like they're doing something similar. People are telling me they'll see them half out of water all the time, like ambushing prey on the shoreline. And so if the were just recede a little bit, then they may get stranded on the shoreline and that may cause them to go search for a new body of water. And perhaps allow them to establish a new body of water, and they can hop from that body of water to another body of water, another body of water, and potentially another body of water. Yeah, it's it's possible. Uh, it hasn't. We haven't really looked into that. But the thing is, it's possible. So we need to consider that case in the case of managing these invasive species that may be able to spread from one body of water overland to another body of water.
0: Right. Yeah. Because then all you need technically right it's just a couple of individuals in one location and of the opposite sex and things start happening right exactly Possibly. exactly this is potentially one of the ways that
1: people think that snakeheads got into the arkansas river and then to mississippi river so they're just entered the mississippi so prepare to see them all over throughout the whole country soon uh, but the northern snakeheads were being farmed for food in in arkansas there was a, this is the early 2000s. They're illegal to farm them. They're delicious. So people are like, oh, we can get some good money for them. And then the first snakeheads were found in Crofton Pond in Maryland. And then they're like, hold up. These are now establishing a invasive species population uh, or invasive non-native population. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declared them injurious wildlife. So nobody's allowed to farm them in the, in the country. And then so they told the fish farmers in Arkansas that you got to stop farming them. And then a couple of years after that, people, or a little while after that, people started noticing these snakeheads in the waterways near these farms. And it's possible they, they escaped on their own, or perhaps somebody introduced them. But one thing that some fisheries people there told me that they think it was this one fish farmer who was told, okay, I got to get rid of these fish. He drained his ponds and then <laughs> threw these fish on the bank. And they're like, all right, they're going to dry out. They're, they're going to die because they're fish. They can't breathe there, move over land. And that was that, but potentially cool. those could have moved if there was a nearby creek, which there often is for fish farms. And Arkansas is very, uh, a lot of waterways, a lot of flooded waterways, a lot of just kind of marshy areas with all these different canals connecting around. And so uh, an oxbow lakes and all that stuff. So it's potential. That's how that happened. And all you needed was a couple individuals of the opposite sex to, to happen to make their way to the same body of water. And that can establish a huge population.
0: Right. Yeah. It really is a crazy concept. I mean, especially in the eyes of someone that's not a fisheries biologist to think about, you know, fish that get up to, what, over 15 pounds crawling around on land. <laughs> so I can I see why it prompted movies to be written. And it, it really is just a crazy concept to think about. Mm. But
1: it's crazy. Uh, what's crazier is that amphibious fishes can get even more than 15 pounds. Uh, notice they get a, the world record is 19.9 pounds. But uh, in this paper, I also describe the terrestrial locomotion of arapaima uh, gigas for the first time or arapaima i'm not sure what species it is because it's based off of one online video that that didn't have any surrounding information on it but it clearly hmm. shows like roughly almost a hundred pound arapaima
0: hmm. crawling
1: on land using a clear form of axle appendage based terrestrial locomotion it's not flopping around randomly as some people may think it's it's got a very controlled behavior it's moving nice calm in a stereotype coordinated fashion over and over until it moves like 15 feet over land from where these people put them on the ground into this body of water. Then you can see it clearly changes its behavior to a swimming behavior once it's deep enough in the water. And so it seems like there's no limit to how large a fish can move over on, on land, or at least long, uh, in the short term. And maybe it may, let's say its ribs get, may get crushed by gravity out of water after several hours on land, but for just a minute or two, moving from one pond to another, one creek to another, it seems like there's no limit to how large amphibious fishes can be.
0: Yeah, I remember the video you showed me. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. It really does look like it's like it's done it before or something. Like, it looks like it, it knows what it's doing, which is really crazy considering the size of the fish. It's incredible. Um, in case, they're mm-hmm. air breathers too, right? Aeroplima.
1: Yes. So they're osteoglossomorpha. Uh, so they all have, uh, they can all breathe air through their swim bladders. And so they can breathe air. They have some some adaptations to make them have pretty robust pectoral fins. And they have thick armored scales that may prevent them from drying out that quickly and also may protect them from getting damaged uh, by moving over the ground. And so they have some of the elements for terrestrial locomotion. And not uh, saying that any fish with those traits are going to go onto land, but more. Like if fish can breathe there, it's more likely to be able to go onto land. If it's got, yeah. if it could support its body weight out of water, it's more likely to be able to go onto land. There's adaptations that make these fish more likely to do so, especially arapaima that also live in those rainy, dry season environments that prone to flooding and then perhaps getting stranded as waters recede.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it really is crazy. It kind of just showcases the diversity of the the fish world, and I mean. Maybe some people that aren't familiar, super familiar with with fish, would probably see that and just go like mind blown, you know. So it is really cool. And despite some of the negatives that could come out of this, it really is just super interesting. So, so in in terms of managing these these fishes, especially the invasives, how do we incorporate these terrestrial behaviors into sort of management plans?
1: Currently, we we don't really, which is a shame. That's that's part of the main argument of what I'm making of the paper, where right? I compiled all data we have on invasive amphibious fishes around the world or at least all of that I could find things even like what caused them to come onto land how do they move over land how far can they move over land how quickly what kind of surfaces do they move more quickly or more slowly on land uh, when they're on land how do they find water or how do they find prey things like that just trying to compile all this information and um, right now all like the only ecological risk assessment that I've found that includes amphibious behaviors is the walking catfish uh, where it that states that these fish can move over a kilometer at a time over on land and breathe air. But there's not really any strategies dealing with them, particularly in Florida, because the Florida is one big wet swamp that always gets flooded. It's hard to separate these waterways. And so there there hasn't really been any effort to use their specific amphibious natural history information to prevent them from spreading, particularly also because they don't do well in cold water. By cold, I mean even northern Florida cold. So, uh, but with climate change, perhaps things will change and they can right. spread out from there. Uh, but uh, some of these other fish, like you have know, the Asian swamp eel, where some papers have described the trust locomotion and their ecological risk assessment by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said that um, one of the people working on that did not observe any amphibious behaviors in <clears> the <throat> experiment uh, or in uh, while observing them, but he never actually tried to see these behaviors, he didn't put them in conditions like on land to see if they could move or perhaps for water quality. And so because there was an absence of evidence, he suggested that like, okay, they can't move over land. Even though I've seen videos of them moving around on land or one of them, two of them moving in this flooded grass that's uh, where half their body is at least out of the water. And perhaps they could spread from a a body of water, a body of water. Uh, Generally the consensus for how to manage invasive fishes is uh, prevent them from spreading into new bodies of waters where if they're in this pond make sure they don't get into that pond but the idea is that they can only go into waterways that are connected so snakeheads are now in the Mississippi and they could spread pretty much a large section of the country through the Mississippi but snakeheads were introduced like in the Crofton Pond in Maryland initially where it's a single pond and then they started popping up other places perhaps some more introductions or some of them from moving over the land but if we were to factor in perhaps these fish like, okay, they can connect through all, any body of water that's connected to this body of water. Plus, let's say we find snakeheads can move 100 feet over land at a time. Then you can have the range of any body of water plus 100 feet around that. And so that may not give a a ton of room, but that may be enough to go from, oh, they're in this pond to this little creek. And then you can follow that creek. They could spread all the way through that creek to another pond that's nearby or get into a river from that creek that feeds into the Chesapeake Bay and then enters the rest of the Chesapeake Bay. And so we can factor in like like how, and create these models of how far can these fish move over land? Uh, Why do they go on? Uh, then we can figure out first, first how far they move over land. We can figure out perhaps better predict how they'll actually spread. And we can also perhaps create barriers or obstacles around let's say uh, sensitive waterways uh, or perhaps make traps or little things that, let's say a snakehead isn't able to crawl over like a little short fence then we can be able to prevent them from spreading and better predict their spread. If we know the conditions that cause them to come out of water, we can better predict where they're more likely to come out of water. If, they're, if the water is really nice quality in this area, then they're unlikely to do this these amphibious behaviors, but it's poor quality over here. This may be an area of concern for where they're more likely to emerge. And perhaps the traps can be put out there to collect them as they're emerging. And then if we understand their sensory biology on land, like we know what senses they use to let's say find water or find prey, We may be able to like lure them to an area and trap them or perhaps deter them from an area that we don't want them to enter. Uh, And this is all, a lot of this is speculative because none of this has been done before but that was the argument of this paper. Like here's all this potential information on how we could, uh, of things that we could factor into their management. Let's see, let's try to work on this. And then like, I guess my call to action in the paper is let's try to work on this and see if we can use this to better manage these invasive species. I can't guarantee it's gonna improve it, but. I think it does have a, some credibility in, into improving the management of these species.
0: Right, yeah. So, I mean, as research comes out that kind of starts to answer these questions of the how and why they're moving over land, um, perhaps it'll start to be incorporated more into these management plans, like you said. I, I think it's really interesting and hopefully something we start to see more of. Yeah, I think there is one,
1: there's one instance where I know that some of this data has been used to manage a somewhat amphibious fish. And this fish I'm talking about is the sea lamprey. And Hmm. they're not very amphibious, but again, it's a spectrum and they can climb small obstacles with their sucker up to about half their body length. And so typically people have been using like these small weirs that are like a foot tall or so that prevent them from moving upstream and it's pretty effective. But some of this data showed that even a shorter obstacle may be beneficial uh, may prevent them like a little bit shorter a few inches shorter may prevent them from being able to climb over these dams and so that means you can drop these weirs down a couple inches and perhaps allow that may improve native fish migrations over these dams and so factoring this specific information in, in particularly in this case it's not leaving the water in, in coming on land in huge bounds, but it is climbing a little bit out of the water and this is a specific case where you're using biological data on the maximum climbing capabilities of lamprey to make a make barriers that are just high enough to prevent them from spreading up the dam right while also allowing for the least impact on these native fishes by with this dam
0: yeah that's cool that it's starting to kind of receive some attention and, and people are starting to to factor it in i guess is is kind of what we're looking for there right exactly so one other thing I wanted to discuss today with you um, is something we've got going on at the end of July. So for our listeners kind of in the Chesapeake Bay region, did you want to kind of talk about what we've got going on as far as our invasive species fishing tournament on the Nanticoke River?
1: Yes. So a grant from the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, I got some funding for our lab to host an invasive species fishing derby on the Nanticoke River out of Sharptown uh, right, on, right on the Nanticoke, a little outside of Salisbury where we are. And we're currently, uh, particularly for your masters, we're currently studying the impact these fish are having on the native ecosystem by looking at their diet, particularly of their, of blue catfish and northern snakeheads to see specifically what kinds of fish are these impacting most or what kind of prey items these impacting most. And we're also doing, working with uh, USGS and the DNR on some other projects, um, like looking at their growth rates, their reproductive rates looking at their reproductive hormones throughout the season and all sorts of these other projects. So instead of us just going out one day at a time with one boat, collecting several fish at a time, or we could usually get a good few, uh, like a hundred catfish at a time or a couple of snakeheads at a time. But what if we recruit hundreds of people to go out fishing and catch all these fish for us all at once, where we're ready with all these coolers and make it a big fun thing where people can get involved in invasive species management. First off, we get, we'll be taking all the specimens from this research, taking them out of these waterways, taking these invasive species out of these waterways to uh, go into our lab for research, for, uh, to help with your master's research, along with some other projects that we got going on. And then we're also going to be educating these anglers on the impacts these uh, invasive species can have on the ecosystem to encourage them to like, understand what, why they're going, what's going on and their potential impacts. Uh, these fish have some impacts, and we're just trying to figure out Are these the apocalyptic impacts or are these uh, bearable impacts that, let's say, maybe reduces the average abundance of all the other fish a little bit, but fits into a new ecosystem and doesn't cause too much chaos? And there's a a spectrum on that. Like you have largemouth bass here now. They're not native to Chesapeake Bay, but people, they're not causing any new mass extinctions or anything like that. And people like them. And so perhaps that may be the fate of snakehead or someone else, but perhaps let's say snakeheads have a, a taste for endangered species that we perhaps don't want them to eat. And so we're, we're trying to get to the bottom of this good or bad. We're just trying to find out these answers. And so we're also going to educate these people on how this research is, it's not, it's not, some people love the snakehead, some people hate the snakehead. This research is not to get rid of the snakeheads. This research is to understand the impacts to decide whether we do or do not need to get rid of the snake heads. And so that's something we're trying to work with the anglers some, uh, and trying to build trust between the angling community and the public and scientists, because a lot of anglers distrust the, the scientists because they think, ah, the scientists are saying there's no fish in there so, we can, so they can stop, increase the regulation so we can't catch any fish anymore. But that's not true. Fishery scientists don't get paid more or less if they say you can catch more or less of a fish. We, we just wanna make sure people can keep catching the fish they wanna catch and have a healthy ecosystem to enjoy. And sure, let's say the case of the striped bass right now, there may be lower striped bass. There's still striped bass there, but if we take a break on those, uh, then we can allow their population to recover so that we can get more striped bass and larger striped bass for people, but it takes a little break. We have to give a little break on that. And so I'm, uh, I decided to host this tournament during the two week summer moratorium on striped bass uh, at the end of July. That's, normal, that's done to encourage people to not target these fish so that these fish, can, uh, in a time where they have the highest mortality, they're most likely to die because stress from being handling. Let's give these fish a break and encourage people to target these blue catfish and snakeheads they may not normally target. And by having this tournament where we're giving out free prizes, people don't need to pay an entry fee. They can just participate. From the shore, the categories of prizes for shore-based anglers, kayak anglers, boat anglers, everybody. And just showing up, you can get a prize. We got fishing rods, too, for people to participate from shore that may not have their own equipment and may not know how to fish. But We want to encourage as many people as possible to go fishing for these invasive species. Enjoy them as a fun fish, big, fun, big fish that, that fight hard. That also really tastes good. We're going to be sharing recipes around and encouraging people, like, eat these, like, they're delicious. Snakehead is absolutely delicious. Better than striped bass, I think. Uh, similar to snapper and halibut, firm white meat, not fishy yeah. at all. Whereas blue catfish too, it's it's catfish. People, it's it's still good. I don't think it's as good as thinking, but it's still a good fish. You may not want to have catfish sushi, but if you fried catfish is delicious. Blackened catfish is delicious. There's ways to prepare it that make them absolutely delicious, especially like a cornmeal batter uh, with a little bit of Cajun seasoning on that catfish, put it in a pan of oil, can't beat that. And so we're trying to encourage people to act as predators for these fish. So to keep their populations in check, these fish have established themselves so much in these areas where they currently are, particularly the Nanticoke River, that there's no amount of removal efforts short of killing every single fish in the Chesapeake Bay and the entire state of Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, and all that. And so we have to learn to live with them. But if we encourage people to keep catching them and keep eating them, we can keep their populations down and mitigate their effects on the ecosystem. And also people can enjoy a new fun fish for recreation and to eat. And if people start liking them and start realizing, oh, these things taste good, then they may want to go to a restaurant and see, oh, it's blue catfish or snakehead on the menu. Like, oh, I would like to order that. And then right. that will create a commercial market. If there's a higher demand. It'll create People will pay more for these fish. And then that will incentivize more people, commercial fishermen to go out for these fish. And then that can reduce the populations of these invasive species more and more. All all, which would all allow these native fish that may have been overfished to recover, but also we're seeing blue catfish in the stomachs, sorry, we're seeing striped bass in the stomachs of blue catfish. And so by encouraging people to take out more blue catfish, you'll have more striped bass. We don't know how many striped bass they're eating right now, but we've seen at least one in there, so we know they're eating some. Uh, And so taking out these blue catfish can only improve the outlook for striped bass uh, and these other fishes of concern.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think, I think you pretty much covered it there. That's, a, that's an awesome description of what we've got going on. Uh, I know I'm super excited to not only get a bunch of samples to analyze back in, a, in the lab, but also to talk to people. Because like you said, I think that promoting trust with people into the scientific community is great. And also just science communication in general, I'm really fond of. So if you are listening and you're around the Chesapeake Bay area in Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, uh, come on out. It's going to be on July 30th. Um, at the Sharptown Boat Ramp in Maryland, if you want to look for me, I'll be the guy covered in fish guts. <laughs> I'll smell pretty bad, but I'm happy to talk all about invasive species with you.
1: Yeah, can you put the uh, the link to the Facebook event page on the is on the podcast?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll put the link in there for the for the event as well as the link for your paper, if there is one. I can get that out so people can check that out as well.
1: One more thing to add on this tournament too is. A lot of times these, the public doesn't see what fisheries biologists do. They see like, oh, the DNR, they're separate from us. They're not working with us. And so part of this is trying to build trust and just by showing, hey, we're real people. Like we're on the water, we're, we're doing what you're doing. Like we're taking, we're, you're helping collect the data that we're gonna use to inform the management of these fish. And so if you don't like the, well, uh, like these people who are catching the fish are getting to be personally involved in this. And so therefore they know, that we're actually working with them. We're on the ground seeing the data that they're seeing. And if then we we recommend we have to like reduce catches of another fish or increase people catching snakeheads or blue catfish, then hopefully they'll understand by being part of it, understand why it's necessary and getting people involved and and participating in these these kind of events in a way that the public generally hasn't been part of before. And so we're trying yeah. to make make the public be part of the management and so feel like they're understanding these decisions better and why we need to do these management decisions that we need to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited to incorporate that citizen science component into it. It's really cool and getting to see people engage and talk to me while I'm cutting open fish and stuff has been really exciting. Um, at some of the other tournaments we've uh, participated in, but having our own tournament here and getting to kind of just talk to everybody and hear all the diverse opinions and, um, Kind of just, like you said, educate people about what, what's going on here on the Eastern Shore. Uh, definitely looking forward to it. So
1: Hopefully it works out. We can make this an annual thing where we can get data each year. We could track these populations over time, track the data over time, see how their diet's changing, see how their growth's changing over time, and just get the community involved more and more and make it some big fishing festival with fish fries and food festival after it. Just uh, make as much people involved and aware of the situation as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'll go ahead and throw the link into the episode description. Um, but if our listeners want to get in contact with you personally, Noah, what's going to be the best way to do that?
1: So I'm very active on social media, and I'm not hard to find. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Noah with Fish. You can find me th- through my email at noahbreisman at gmail dot com. You can. Just Google me and my website comes up. It's noabresmanwixsitecom Noah. And we got to update that website, include a page on, on your research in there, but we'll do that another time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm I'm not hard to find. If you just search my name, I, I come up. I'm the only real Noah Breastman that I know of in the world. So feel free to message me however you, you want to. And if people don't have access to the manuscript based on uh, paywalls, uh, as a scientist, I'm able to share the free copies of this publication. So if you need a free copy, let me know. I'd be happy to share it out That many people are
0: interested. Awesome. So thanks, thanks for coming on the podcast. I know it was great talking about your new paper, as well as kind of getting the word out about our tournament. So hopefully people will check out that paper and then participate a little bit in our tournament coming up in July. No problem. Thanks for having me. If you would like to get a hold of us at the Fisheries Podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Pod, or by email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app, or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some Fisheries Podcast logo merch available on Teespring. I'm Zach Crum, and thank you for listening to the 179th episode of the Fisheries Podcast.